Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome as our guest, Dr. Michael Carpin. Dr. Carpin, thank you for coming back and sharing with us today. Always a pleasure, Arch. It's a delight to be able to speak with you. Well, it's always a delight to speak with you and, and all the knowledge that you have. Dr. Carpin is a graduate of Gettysburg College with a bachelor's degree, master's degree from Johns Hopkins University, and a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. And he is now in his 19th year teaching at Marple Newtown High School, teaching primarily economics and government. And he is now the recent published editor of a book on causes for the Civil War. So, Michael, congratulations on the book and congratulations. Thank you very much. And congratulations on 19 years at Marple Newtown. Uh, it's, it's flown. It's hard to believe it's that it's long. Hard to believe. And also, I want to personally congratulate you on your upcoming wedding. So, congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. So, Dr. Carpenter has been with us in the past and spoke on the Constitution and the, and the Civil War. And he's going to be speaking to us in today's program and the following program on the causes of the Civil War, which is very prevalent in our culture and society today. So, Michael, before you start, would you share with our listeners a little bit of the background of what got you interested, one, in being the editor for the book and then a little bit of the background of what it means to be the editor of a book? Well, to, to be the editor of a book, as opposed to being an author where you're, you're writing the book, you're doing your own research, you have your own vision, different sorts of things like that. An editor is you have an overall vision for what you want, but then you procure essays and resources from other authors and then provide feedback, so what I'm, suggestions for revisions different types of things to fit them into the overall vision of what you want for the volume. And the volume that I did on teaching the the causes of the American Civil War, I happened to just become acquainted with a series running through Peter Lang Press on teaching critical themes in American history, and obviously what leads to the Civil War being one of those themes. And, you know, frankly, from my perspective as a classroom teacher, it's difficult to teach. It's so important that students are aware of the causes that you know lead to a war that kills 700,000 people, lasts four years, kills 2% of our population, leads to the end of the institution of slavery. You know, a lot of really huge topics, but also a way that teachers and students can grapple with the complexities of this era in a constructive and a meaningful way. It's a very difficult balance for classroom teachers. And so when I structured this volume, I wanted to provide those resources for teachers to allow for just a more meaningful examination of such a critical time period in American history. And listeners, I want you to know that something else about Dr. Carpenter, he's a pretty good golfer. And <laughs> and we were we were on the that. golf course a couple of weeks ago and Dr. Carpenter gave me this book and I brought it home. And Michael, I sat down the next day and I read the book in a little over a day and I was just captivated. Okay, well, I was captivated by the different authors and their presentation of how to teach the different causes of the Civil War. And I was thinking, you know, do you think that this would also be valuable for non-teachers to also read and I, as a study? I, I 
think so. I, I think the you know, my parents had a very similar reaction. They really enjoyed, you know, the, the parts of the book are basically, there are historical analysis essays, which I found very interesting, where different authors had different, you know, different historical perspectives on the different causes of the, of the Civil War. And then also, there's a pedagogical challenges section. And that's the okay, we've got this really complex, really important history. You know, what are the challenges in terms of teaching it? And then there's also some interesting resources for teachers, primary sources, different types of documents, things like that to supplement classroom instruction. So I, you know, the the historical essays, analysis essays alone, I was very pleased with what I received. And, and really, I, I think they provided some really varied and really interesting perspectives, you know, some of which I'll talk about today. And why do you believe that so many people have a simplified view of the causes of the Civil War, where it's much more complex than what the, you know, the average person sitting somewhere reading believes? Well, I could argue that it, it's both simple and complex at the same time. And I, yeah, and I think that's what makes it difficult to teach. I, you know, when you called me a couple of days ago and you, you floated this idea of the show, like a lot of things in life, I immediately thought of an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, because I guess the Simpsons, the Simpsons had been on for so long that they pretty much covered everything by this point. But I immediately thought of there was an episode where a character who has, you know, for very good reasons, been retired from the show, was taking his citizenship test. And one of the questions on the citizenship test, the examiner looks at him and says, you know, what was the cause of the Civil War? And so this guy begins to get into this very big, nuanced explanation. You know, there's the schism, you know, at between abolitionists and anti-abolitionists. There's economic factors, both international and domestic. And the guy stops him and says, just say slavery. <laughs> and the guy taking the exam says, well, OK, well, slavery it is, sir. And then they he passed the exam and then they moved on. And so I, I often, you know, when I discuss this with students, I'll say, you know, and I, I there's very few times where I am very outright in my opinion on a particular issue. But I'm like, look, there's five causes of the American Civil War, slavery, 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 slavery and slavery. Uh, you know, there's there's no two ways about it. But at the same time, it's so complex because it's one of those things that it reminds me of, like, the Great Depression, the Vietnam War, like big critical issues that literally touch every aspect of American society top to bottom. And because of that, it's just one of those major turning points in American history because it literally just does hit everything. So it's simple yet complex because of its, it reaches so far into every aspect of American society. So if you would, please begin to share with us the causes of the Civil War that are the complex causes of Civil War rather than the large cause of slavery. Yeah, I, you know, it's like, where do you start? So mm -hmm. the, the place that I like to start, and this was, if you, if you read the introduction of my book, one of the more powerful letters that I've ever read, and the original of this is in the holdings of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. If you Googled it, you could find a digitized version if you wanted to read it. But it is a letter between Thomas and Percival Drayton, you know, not major names in American history, but they are brothers. They are born in South Carolina. The family around 1819, if I, if I recall off the top of my head, they moved to Philadelphia in 1833 in response to the nullification crisis, which is something I'll talk about a, a little later on. The father believes in the union moves the family to Philadelphia, but one brother, Thomas, stays in South Carolina. 
he goes to West Point. He's a civil engineer. He's a state legislator in South Carolina, and he's also a plantation owner. I forget the name of the plantation off the top of my head, but he has about 100 enslaved people on that plantation. His brother, Percival, who goes north in the 1830s, enters the U.S. Navy in the 1820s, stays in the Navy, and he's a commander by the 1850s. Percival is stationed in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. If any of our listeners out there might might remember that, the, right. the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And he receives a letter from his brother, Thomas, who's still in South Carolina. The date of the letter is November 7th, 1860. What happened the day before, Mr. Hunter? Yeah. November 6th, 1860. November 6th, 1860. That would be the election of Abraham Lincoln. That would be the election of Abraham Lincoln as as president of the United States in a very hotly contested four-way presidential race yeah, and reason yeah. for that four-way presidential race. Wow. You know, we'll talk about a little later on. And the letter is just fascinating to read because the letter starts and Thomas writing in South Carolina says to his brother Percival in, in, in Philly, he says, well, Lincoln is elected and now for the end. You know, he, 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 you know, uh, I, I quote Bob Dylan, you don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing here. It's, it's a very mournful letter. He, he, he everybody knows what's going to happen here, uh, especially in, in South Carolina. They'll, they'll secede about a month later. Uh, you know, it's a letter that is, it's mournful. It's not like, yay, we're going to succeed. This is going to be great. You know, mm-hmm. have fun running your country. We're going to go do our thing. You know, it's a very mournful letter. He says that no one deplores it more than I do. We are going to have a division between brothers. You know, he's really right on the money everywhere by this point. But at the same time, and I think this is what's really interesting, and this is what gets at the complexities here, and this is what makes it difficult to talk about and and teach about the causes of the Civil War, especially to modern audiences. It's very mournful. But at the same time, this letter is very defiant in the reasons for these divisions. And so I'm just going to, if you, you don't mind, Mr. Hunter, I'm just going to read uh, just a little section here. He says to Thomas in South Carolina, says to his brother Percival, I now go for separation as the only security of the South. My judgment and feelings may have led me to think and decide erroneously, but I shall not waver. I have no hope of new guarantees to protect us against a, and listen to this really carefully, a fanatical and unscrupulous majority. Misrule, contempt of law, word, and religion crop out of the body politic, Mm. the exclusions of honor, decency, and truth. There is no sober thought strong enough to do justice if appealed to. I shall attempt to incriminate no one section. The whole people are to blame. And must suffer together. Wow. There's, there's a lot going on there. Well, there and, sure and is. And it really, you know, it, it's not, it, it, I don't know, what, 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 how do you, you respond to that, Archie? What do you think about when you hear that? Well, when you first said that, it's it's total contrary thinking to when you see the, the scene in Gone with the Wind where, you know, mm-hmm. they're at the plantation and they're all excited about going to war. Mm-hmm. This is a totally different understanding that particularly this person was very somber about the decision mm-hmm. they were going to make. Extraordinarily so. But at the same time, he's like, look, I, you know, I don't like that we're doing this. Yes. But yes. we have to do this. We have to defend ourselves against all these other things. And, you know, it's nobody's fault alone. 
it's all of our faults. It's the whole country's fault. And we're all going to suffer together as a result. So, you know, understanding that and, and context is so important, you know, seeing that from the perspective of a Southerner, from the perspective of a slave owner is, you know, it, it really, it touches upon all of the faults and fissures of this conflict. And, you know, I, I think leads to a deeper, but also more complex understanding of what's going on here. Mike, do you believe that the foundation for this was the Constitutional Convention and, and the Fifth Compromise? You know, that, that's certainly one of the schools of thought. I, I, you know, I, I, I remember asking a class at one point, and I always like to we talk about the Civil War. Like, you know, what's the point of no return? What's the what's the when when they jumped off the cliff and there was no chance of going back? And students had won the Constitutional Convention. Which is kind of an interesting perspective, and it's it's one of the questions that we have to address. Is this conflict set in stone in September of 1787 in Philadelphia when the United States Constitution is done in convention? You know, there's certainly arguments. There's certainly a lot of discussion about the issue of slavery at the Constitutional Convention. I mean, it's a, it's a whole other topic for another day. What the perspectives of the individual framers were about the institution of slavery. You know, you look at the 55 men assembled in Philadelphia and they run the gamut. Mm -hmm. You know, they from from those who wanted to get rid of the institution. A lot of states are beginning to go in that direction, including Pennsylvania. And then delegates from the South, particularly Georgia and South Carolina, who want to maintain the institution because, as you know, their economies depend on it. You look at a figure like Washington, who, you know, we've talked about a little bit. It's obviously a huge part of his operations at Mount Vernon. But at the same time, he's conflicted about the institution. He's growing less convinced about the economic efficiency of it. But at the same time, he's not going to stake a bold position on the issue because his leadership style was as such that if there wasn't national consensus on a topic, he wasn't going to to wade into it. So clearly, there's not a, a, a consensus about it. And an interesting question is, you know, the final document that emerges in Philadelphia, you know, is it? And I was just reading a a book over the summer about Abraham Lincoln and slavery in the Republican Party and that that whole time period of the 1850s. And a question to ask is, is the Constitution a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery document? And the answer is both. And I think that you can argue both because the practice isn't done away with. The importation is allowed until 1808. The fugitive slave cause and actually some of the debates over the fugitive slave cause in the Constitution um, are pretty interesting. The word legally was removed from the fugitive slave cause at one point in the committee of style as they were putting some of the finishing touches on the document, which was suggesting that if the institution was going to be legally recognized, it would be state by state. It would not be legally recognized by the federal government created under the Constitution. At the same time, the word slave is never mentioned in the document. Obviously, the ban on importation after 1808. I, I've even read things that you can look at the three-fifths compromise in different ways that 
it's an expression of what what some framers believed was the economic inefficiency, similar along the lines of some of the concern Washington had in terms of the labor that they produced. Uh, I, you know, in balance, they're brilliant individuals, but they can't see into the future. Did they honestly think at that time that the institution would probably die out? I think there's a lot of evidence that they believe that the institution would die out. Die out. Uh, and of course, and of course, what happens five years later? You know, after you know 1787, then we move ahead five years. 1790 is what gets invented, the cotton gin. Thanks, Eli Whitney. And then it, it, you know, it just takes on, you know, it just takes on a whole new debate. So it's obviously, it's very unclear from the document itself. You know, and at the same time, and th- this is another issue that I bring up with students as well. That okay, let's let's play a little hypothetical here. And as a trained historian, I I don't like to do hypotheticals, but let's you know, w- let's let's do a hypothetical here. So let's say it's a deal breaker, and and you know, and it, it, it in some essence, especially with the Southern delegates, especially Georgia and South Carolina, you know, it is a deal breaker. If certain parts of slavery, the practice of slavery, were going to be impacted. Southern delegates would have walked. I said, so, so let's let's take it from the other end here. So we have to get rid of this practice. And a rule of negotiation is you have to be willing to walk away sometimes. So we're going to walk away. You're not going to eliminate this awful practice, this awful immoral practice. Okay. We walk. There's no constitution. You know, think about what happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we revert back to the Articles of Confederation. Is the Articles of Confederation going to do away with the institution? No. Uh, You think of the powers that eventually led to the rightful destruction of this institution during the American Civil War by Abraham Lincoln. Would those powers have been available under the Articles of Confederation or some other system of government? Probably not. Probably not. And so when, when when, when when you think about it that way, I don't know. It it gives a it gives a different look at the document, and so and on, and on top of it all, it, it's just it's a compromised document. And what happens with slavery? And you know, we'll we'll talk about this in the rest of this episode, and then you know, the 1850s, like we compromise until we can no longer compromise, and that's what happens with this issue. And, and Mike, the letter that you or that with you quote a part of the letter from from Thomas. Mm-hmm. Why do you believe that that was such an immediate reaction to Lincoln's election when oftentimes, oh, well, I, oftentimes he said he wasn't going to, you know, outlaw slavery? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, when we and, you know, I guess we'll t- we'll talk about this more when we when we when we get to the 1850s and, you know, the the position, you know, the you know, well, not to get too far ahead, but the, the Republican Party is is an anti-slavery party. And their position at the time is not necessarily ending the practice of slavery within the southern states, but preventing its expansion westward. And we know, you know, we can look at the map of the United States mm-hmm. over, you know, b- between the founding and, and 1860 and understand how the United States is expanding and what what that what that would do besides the obvious economic impacts of of the South. When you look at the numbers, the political influence of the South has been diminishing 
over that first half of of the 18th century. You know, what were once very large states in the 1790 census are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller by the 1860 census. And and so from a from a practical political level, you know, if states enter the union not allowing for this practice, not allowing for this very ingrained economic system that we see in the South, you know, they would be be reduced to a, a really powerless reason. So it was it wasn't even, you know, the fact that uh, the you know the Republican Party wouldn't allow the practice of slavery to expand. I, I don't think was particularly reassuring um, because I they, they could they could see what 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 would happen to their to their overall power in the national institutions of government. And we have about six minutes left, Michael. Oh so wow. Do you, I know, do you, as you said, this is m- very complex yeah. and you're just scratching the surface. Do you want to uh, talk yet about the nullification crisis? Do you want to? Yeah, you know, and that, and that's the thing, because that's, you know, in, in the context of the of the Drayton family, I mean, so the nullification crisis is is not about slavery. But guess where it start in, starts in the good old state of South Carolina? You know, the, the, the nullification crisis isn't about slavery per se. Um, but it is about, and this is going to be one of the one of the many issues that this that this slavery touches upon, is what's a federal power and what's a state power. And you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're having these discussions today. We've you know we've been having these discussions since since the founding. You know, how far do the powers of the federal government reach? And um, you know, to what extent can the state governments respond? And so the nullification crisis was in response to a tariff. Now, northern states loved tariffs at this time period in the 1830, taxes on, on imported goods, because the north was becoming more industrial. Well, the south was very rural and very agrarian, and they relied on imported goods. And so any tariff, while helping the north, uh, made made goods more expensive, and so South Carolina basically said, uh, "We're just not going to follow that federal law. We're just going to ignore that because it we don't agree with it. It's not constitutional. It's an overreach of your powers. All of that. You know, how close does it get to to what we see in 1860 with the actual Civil War? I don't know, but what does happen?" And say what you want about him, Andrew Jackson, at that moment in time, and Andrew Jackson, you know, you think of the, you know, very, very states' rights, very, you know, talked a lot about the overarching powers of the federal government, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, Andrew Jackson basically says to the state of, Carol- South, state of South Carolina, you, you, you can't do that. You can't ignore federal law. And if you keep going down this path, it's not going to end well for you. And a compromise is reached and a, and a crisis is averted. But you see some signals. And I, and I, I don't have the quote off the, off the right in front of me, but I, I recall during that crisis, Andrew Jackson saying something along the lines of today it's tariffs and the next time it comes up, it's going to be this issue of slavery, which, you know, as as you and I know, is a is a pretty darn good prediction of what is slowly going to build through the 1830s and the 1840s, and then, you know, the point of no return in the in the 1850s, you know, leading up to secession and civil war. 
And we're going to have to stop right there for this segment. This time just flies by. and It really as, does. As Dr. Carpenter has said, we can see that these issues are simple, but yes, also very complicated over a long period of time. So, Dr. Carpenter, thank you for sharing with this segment. We look forward to you in our next show, continuing this series on the um, reasons and causes for the Civil War. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Always a pleasure, Arch. Thank you so much. This is 1180 AM WFYL, Working for Your Liberty.